Here's a reading from Luke 16, starting in verse 1. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you, uh, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we get to come into a place like this and declare you to be at the center of our lives, the center of our hearts, from our heart to the heavens. And Lord, I pray that the first commandment would ring in our ears, that we would have no other gods besides you. And Lord, would you forgive us of those moments when we put other gods right beside you. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will give us eyes to see and hearts to receive what you have for us this evening. Lord, would you speak? Your servants are listening. We pray this in Jesus' good, good, good name. Amen. Have you ever seen the cartoon Tom and Jerry? Yes? Well, if you've seen the cartoon Tom and Jerry, then you can understand what's going on in the parable tonight, actually. There's the big, powerful one who is outsmarted by the small, witty one. 
And the parable that we find ourselves looking at tonight uh, is actually one of the hardest parables to interpret, people say. In fact, if you look in most commentaries, uh, one of the first lines of commentary about this parable is that this is Jesus' most, interp- uh, har- most uh, difficult parable to interpret. Uh, and you see that quite often. Uh, I do believe that there are some helpful clues in understanding what's going on here, and we have to know a little bit about the culture to understand what's going on in this passage. Uh, But one of the things to keep in mind um, is that whenever we come to the parables, remember that there are parables of comparison, and then there are parables of contrast. And so those, are, those have two different functions, if you will. The parables of comparison are the ones that we're the most used to, and there's more of those than the others. And they give us a model in which we are to be like something. You know, here's a good example, be like this. But then there's also parables of contrast that give us an example that we're not to be like. And most of the time, we learn the opposite of what's being told in the parable or uh, what's uh, the, the worldly principle that we see there, we're to re- apply it in a redemptive way. And we'll see another parable like this as we go through the Gospel of Luke, uh, such as the parable of the persistent widow, uh, two chapters later. So there's parables of comparison, there's parables of contrast, and the parable we're looking at tonight falls into the category of the parable of contrast. And so in verse 1, the text opens up, if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, the text opens up and it says, he, Jesus, also said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. First thing I want you to notice about the text is that Jesus is turning his attention, his audience now, is the disciples. Uh, he's been speaking to uh, uh, the crowd, and there's been fair, the Pharisees and the scribes have been there, and that's been kind of the main audience that he's talking to. And so in this text, we see a shift from chapter 15 to chapter 16. So his main audience uh, are his disciples, but the Pharisees and scribes are listening, and we'll see that this, sun, this coming Sunday. The rich man uh, that's mentioned here uh, in the passage, um, in no way is he construed as evil uh, in any way. Uh, He's somewhat neutral in the story, but it's the manager who has the problems or causes the trouble. The manager plays the role of the worldly person uh, that we are to contrast or learn from here. And some people make the argument, actually, that this parable should be connected to the parable of the prodigal sons, as I put it. Uh, Because you have to remember, there were not chapters and verses in the Bible until around 1511 uh, in France. And so so that's a very new thing uh, when it comes to the canon, when it comes to Scripture. And so a lot of people think that this uh, parable that we're reading here should be connected to the one before it. Um, and there's a case that could be made for that, but uh, uh, it is what it is. But there is a connection that's very important. And the connection is around the word waste. The word waste here, that he's wasting his master's possessions, is the same word that's used for the younger prodigal son, where he squandered his father's property with reckless living. It's the same language that's used. And so we see the parable that we looked at Sunday with the younger and older brother, and one of them was wasting uh, what they had been given. And here we see the exact same thing, just in a different way. So one, again, parable uh, that we are to 
compare ourselves to and ask those kind of questions to, and here we see the contrast. Another issue to clarify is what kind of manager uh, are we talking about here? What exactly is he managing and what is the business of the rich man? And if you just look at the text, uh, I think what it points to, there were two types in the first century. One was kind of a banker, if you want to think in those terms, and then one was a farmer. And both were very lucrative and they would have managers who ran their households. That was, those were the two main types. And as we see from the text here, there are different clues that point out that this rich man is probably a farmer. And so the picture you should have in your mind is that there is a wealthy man who owns an estate in some way, who farms out land in different ways, and this manager is the one who is working and managing all of that. And so the text tells us that the rich man, that there were some charges were brought to him that his manager is wasting his possessions. So in verse 2 it says, and he called to him and said, what is this I hear about you? And then he says, turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Now, not only was this manager wasting the rich man's money or possessions, he also got caught. And notice that the rich man trusts the evidence that was brought to him. It's interesting. He simply takes it. He believes it. And so he calls the man in and he fires him in that moment. And you'll note from the text that the manager is not seeking any kind of information or verification from the manager. The rich man's not. He's not asking him to confirm or deny in any way. Many times in the first century, and even today, sometimes people will kind of level an accusation because they want to see if the one who's being accused by their actions or by their words will either confirm or deny whether or not they're guilty. But uh, the manager here is smart. He just remains silent. The text is silent on any kind of response that he might have back to the rich man or his boss in that sense. Now, whenever the rich man told him to turn in the accounting, what that meant was that was a final action, meaning he was fired on the spot. All he's asking for is that you go get the books and all of your keys or whatever that may be, and you bring that right here, right now, which meant from this point forward, and this is important, from this point forward, any business that this man does is illegal. In fact, any business that the manager does from this point forward is not legally binding to his boss. Now, at this point, he could have protested. He could have said, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look, I've served you for a long time. My family has served you for a long time. That certainly happened a lot in the first century. Or he could have said, you know, okay, this is really my fault in some way. You know, I've done my best, but the workload's been heavy. Or he could have said, tell me who told you these things. Bring them in here and let's have a confrontation. And they're lying. Let them say that in front of me with honesty. But again, he says nothing. He does not protest in any way. He does not try to defend himself in any way. And the point of that in the parable is that he is admitting or proving that he is guilty. That's the point of his silence. So the question is, what does he do? He's been managing this property. We don't know for how long. Again, it's a parable. It's a story. He's been mismanaging it. He's been wasting it, right? He's been negligent in some way or he's been overspending in other ways. He is let go, and so verse 3 says, and the manager said to himself, 
just like the younger prodigal son, right, when he came to himself, right? He said to himself, here's what I'm going to do. What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg, he says. Notice that the manager, again, does the same thing that the younger prodigal son does. And notice that he does not inquire of God. The conversation is with himself here. I need to think through, I need to figure out what it is I need to do next. As he's thinking through, we get some of his thoughts. He says, I can't do manual labor, I can't do digging, right? Which is an indicator probably that this is a farm setting, right? He says, this is my position up here. I can't just go out there in the field with them and dig. But then he also says, I can't stoop to begging. And and, and part of that is, he says, I'm ashamed of begging. But a part of that is, is actually he does not qualify for being a beggar. Uh, You had to have certain qualifications to be a beggar, such as blindness, being deaf, a broken leg, or loss of limb, or be paralyzed, or something like that. So he doesn't fit any of that. And he says, I'm not strong enough, and he's being honest about uh, what he can and cannot do. I'm not strong enough to go out and do manual labor. I don't really have the qualifications. I'm ashamed uh, to go beg because that would be very shameful in his culture. And so in verse four, he says, I've made a decision. I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, meaning after he goes and gets the books and bring them back to his manager, that'd be the last thing. When I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So here we see his end goal. His goal, the thing he wants the most, is to be received into someone else's house. Now, he's not just talking about a sleepover here, okay? For someone who is a manager or a servant, to be received into someone's house means that they go get another job, right? They go manage someone else's house. They go serve in someone else's house. And if someone in the first century was fired for not properly managing someone else's property, the likelihood of them getting another job uh, was very, very slim, if not non-existent. Anybody ever watch Downton Abbey? Go ahead and raise your hand. Go ahead. I know. You feel guilty. It's okay. Now. If you, if you think about Downton Abbey, the servants, those who live downstairs, they need a letter of reference, right, in order to get another job. If they don't have that letter of reference, they can't get another job in another house. Same concept here. Same concept here. Thank you for those of you who are very honest about that. <laughs> so this man wants to make himself popular, if you will, with the people uh, who his master has done business with. But, but he wants to make himself popular, but he does not want them to know that he has mishandled his master's property. So he wants to do this quick. So we see in verse five, here's what he does. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, which means there were probably many, okay? We get two examples, but probably many. Summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? Notice he's still posing here as if he works for the master, right? He doesn't. But he asked, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to them, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Cut it by 50%. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. Cut it 20%. Now, 
Again, notice that we only get two examples of this. But the text does point out he went to them one by one, meaning there could have been many, many, many people who live uh, in the town or the village in which this is at. All of them would have had the same kind of experiences. And the percentages are different, and that could have been um, probably, you know, they could have been of equal value depending on the return on investment for the products or the amount that was included as far as interest goes and all that stuff. But he cuts them down. And the smart thing that he did was that he did this action, he took this action in private. In private. And that's key. The way the text reads, he went to them one by one, right? The way the text reads is he goes to them individually. He doesn't do this in public, and this is very, very important. Because you have to remember, the Bible's written in a shame-honor culture. Shame being brought on the family or honor being brought to the family and you giving honor to others as well is very, very important. So if he went around parading this kind of debt reduction for people, the people who he reduced the debt for that he went around and paraded it for, it would actually bring shame on them. It would not give them honor. People would say, oh, they must not be able to pay their full debt. But instead, he goes to them one by one. He has this conversation. He reduces the debt in private, thus showing them honor, which means in the future, they're going to show him honor, right? Because what's his goal? He wants to be brought into someone else's house when he leaves. And, what, and it may be one of those people who he's reduced their debt. So the last interaction they're going to have in their mind with this manager is that, well, he showed me honor in reducing my debt, but he didn't tell anyone about it. He didn't make a public spectacle of it. And that's what's being imprinted on their minds. At the same time, what the man is doing, the manager is doing, he's making the rich man, the boss that just fired him, he's making him look good. He's making him receive honor as well. Honor with all those businessmen whose debts just got reduced by some percentage. Which means he's giving, the guy who just fired him, the manager is giving him favor with all of those people. In this one action, he, it's, he's trying to preserve himself and his future. At, but he does it in such a way that now his boss is being praised as well. So verse 8. The text just says in the parable, notice, we don't know how he found out or how the news came to him. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then it goes on, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, Jesus says. So remember, this is a parable of contrast. This is a worldly boss talking to a worldly manager, giving him worldly praise for worldly wisdom. So the question is, what was he shrewd about? Why did he commend him? And again, how does that contrast in how we are to live? I only have a few things that I pulled out of this parable. I'm going to give you seven, okay? <laughs> There's more. I'll just give you seven. The first thing is, the manager did not give up. He persevered. Notice that when he hears this news, this is devastating news, especially especially in the first century. Everything was built off reputation and a shame-honor culture. 
he hears this devastating news that he's been caught wasting his boss's property. And what he does is push forward. He perseveres. The manager does not give up, but he perseveres out of this personal self-preservation. Now, the contrast for us is that we're called not to give up. We're called to persevere, uh, but not out of self-preservation. We're called to persevere because we've been given a mission from God. We're called to persevere for the glory of God, that the glory of God will be seen and known through us, not for selfish reasons, but for God-honoring reasons. Number two, notice that this man uh, trusted his own wisdom. He trusted his own wisdom, again, like the young prodigal. In contrast, we're not called to do this. We're called to trust God's wisdom. And those people who God places around us, who give us wise, godly counsel. Number three, notice that the man, he, under, uh, he actually understood his own limitations, right? He, he said, well, I, I know I can't go dig. And he says, I'm too ashamed to, you know, go beg. He doesn't meet the qualifications for it. He says, but I actually know I can't go make a living on my own. This is actually a point of honesty. He knew what he was good at and he knew what he was not good at. But again, from a selfish point of view. The contrast for us is we are to look at and understand how God has gifted us for his glory, even at our own expense. Not just selfishly, no, I can't do that, but we're going to understand how God has given us gifts, God has given us talents, God has called us to a particular thing and wired us in a unique way, right? And we're to use that for God's glory, but we're also to understand our own limitations. Number four, the manager was worried about his position in society. He was worried about his standing, his place. Again, in the shame honor culture, this is very important. The contrast is we are called to be concerned as well, but we're called to be concerned about our place in heaven, not in society. Our standing in heaven, not in society. Number five, in the business world, this manager, he showed honor to the people he did business with. But in showing this honor, he also had to cheat his master, right? So the contrast is we are called to do business ethically in a way in which we do show honor to people, but we do that. We don't want to dismiss other people. We don't want to diminish other people. Uh, But at the same time, it has to be done ethically because we're not called to be some kind of modern day Robin Hood, right? Which is kind of the role that he's playing here. He showed honor. Number six, he worked in such a way in which the master who just fired him received honor as well from other people. In contrast, again, ethically, we are called to use all of our resources that we have to show honor to God, but again, do it ethically. And because we do this because God is the one who actually gives us all the resources that we actually have, right? And then number seven, this manager thought about the future. He thought about the future. Many times we become a slave to the present, don't we? We become enslaved to just thinking about now, thinking about today, and maybe a little bit about tomorrow. But this man, at least, he was thinking about the future, albeit selfish and for self-preservation again. That's what motivating. But for us, by contrast, too, we too are to think about the future. But we don't think about the future as like he was doing, as just future safety, 
in that sense, future security in that sense. We're to think about the future in such a way in which we're willing to lay down our life if God calls us to in any way, lay down our life in any way according to his will. And then as we move through the future on this earth, that should be our posture. Then ultimately we are to be thinking about our future in heaven. So again, the story that Jesus tells here, it's not just like for like. It's not just comparison. And there are other points and things that we could draw out and say. But it's by contrast. And then Jesus begins to elaborate on this. In verses 9 and following, he gives these series, if you will, of one-liners that are very important. You can preach a whole sermon off each one of them. In verse 9, probably the most confusing one, he says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. We read that verse, and that's a very confusing verse a lot of times. It's confused me and many, 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 many others. But when you slow down and you look at what Jesus says about money here, what he's about to say next, and when you look at what Jesus says about money in terms of uh, the broader narrative, I think some things come into focus. Number one, Jesus is saying that money, earthly wealth and money will one day fail. It will one day fail. In other words, it's not going to get us into eternity, right? And and the truth is, we all kind of know that in principle, don't we? We we know that in our mind. We we can wrestle with that, and yet, we find ourselves enslaved to it. Number two, Jesus is saying that this unrighteous thing called earthly wealth can be used, I think he's saying, can be used for eternal good. We can use money or wealth or our dealings with money and wealth— in a way that both show honor to people and honor to God, meaning that we can use our wealth in such a way that it makes God look good, if you want to put it that way. Again, give him honor. Or we can just go the way of the world, and the way they use wealth, and just ask the question, how do I want to use money or wealth to make me look good or to make me feel comfortable? But he's saying you can use it differently here. And so there's kind of two options when it comes to interpreting verse 9. Uh, two main ones. The first one uh, I'll call the sarcastic option. What Jesus could be saying in verse 9 is to say it with sarcasm. When he says, and I tell you, make friends with yourselves by unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He could be saying that sarcastically, kind of like Dr. Phil, just saying, you just go ahead and do that, and then I'll come to you and ask you, how's that working for you? Or he could be saying it as a fact, as a truth, to be held on to, meaning Jesus could be saying to us uh, that to use this earthly thing called wealth or money, use it to win people into the kingdom. He could be saying, by contrast, do not use wealth the way this man used wealth, but use wealth in such a way that you'll be welcomed by those who you win to Christ one day in eternity. And the reason why I point out the two different interpretations is because it all depends on how you interpret eternal dwellings. See, if he says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings, meaning hell, right? Because it seems neutral. Then he's saying it sarcastically. 
He says, yeah, go ahead and see if that works for you. One day that's going to fail, and then all that you have done to have this unrighteous wealth, right? Yeah, well, it's not going to work for you in the end. Could be sarcastic. Or he could be talking about heaven whenever he says the phrase eternal dwellings. I actually think he's talking about heaven because the word dwellings here is the word tabernacle. So I would read the verse and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal tabernacle. And just so I'm clear on what that means, again, I think Jesus is saying that this unrighteous thing we call earthly wealth can be used for an eternal good. We can use wealth or money or our dealings with it to show honor to people and show honor to God. We can use our money in such a way that really does bring glory to God and win people to him and one day they will thank us for it. I believe that's what Jesus is saying there. But here's the thing, no matter if you interpret it as sarcasm, which is a real thing in the Bible, by the way. Uh, some of you don't believe me, but it's there, I promise. Whether you interpret it as sarcasm or as a fact, a truth that he is stating, the application is both the same. Because the application is that there is a worldly way of using money for self-preservation, for self-promotion. And then there is a heavenly way of using money that honors God and others. And so that's the first one. Then he gives us verse 10. And here they move fast. The one who is faithful in very little is also faithful uh, in much. And the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. And again, we know that he has made statements like this. Many of us have met people who they, they don't want to do things for God or the church or the society uh, unless it's something they consider to be big. And Jesus says, no, it starts with being faithful in the small things. And then in verse 11, he says, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, meaning earthly money, who will entrust you with true riches, meaning heavenly riches? He says, if you can't be faithful with something like an inanimate object called money, it's paper, it's coin, it's numbers on a paper. If you can't be faithful with that, how are you going to be faithful with deep spiritual truth? It's a good question, Jesus. Thanks for asking it. Verse 12. And, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now, pulling from the parables... He says, if you, ha and if you have not uh, been faithful with that which is another's, who is the another's? I think he's talking about God. Everything we have, God has given us. So if we can't be faithful with the things that God has brought into our life on this earth, he says, how are you going to be faithful up there? Because again, that's the rhythm of his statements here. An earthly thing, an eternal thing. And then he says, no one can serve two masters. For he'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And here, he's talking about money again, from the parable, about one-third of Jesus' parables are about money or involve money. And he's making a very important point. You know, I prayed earlier that we would not break the first commandment, have no other gods besides God. 
Some of your translations say before God. That's what it means. That so many times we want to put God's beside God. And that's what he's getting at here. And he's talking in terms of being a servant because being a servant is an action, not a title. A lot of times we won't serve unless we have some title and name tag that goes with it. He says, no, 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 no. It's about having a servant's heart. And the heart of service is stewardship, Jesus is telling us. And stewardship is an act of the will. It's not determined by circumstances. So many times we think good stewardship is determined by circumstances or we think in terms of I'll be a good steward if I have enough here, then I can be a good steward of it out there. Being a good steward is not about circumstances. It's an act of our will and it's determined by our love. Because Jesus said where your money is, treasure, there your heart will be also. And so if you're looking at this parable as a whole, I think the big idea that he is pushing for is faithful stewardship on earth. Stewardship of everything that he has given us. Everything, no matter what it is, money included, yes, but everything. Faithful stewardship on earth that reveals that the reality of heaven is actually in us now. That's why you see him go back and forth. If not this, then not that. If not this, then not that. He says, it has to be in you now. The faithful stewardship on earth, it reveals that the reality of heaven, this heavenly perspective is actually being lived out in us in the here and now. And that's ultimately what I think he's teaching us in this parable. And so may we be found faithful. Faithful stewards on earth, everything that he's given us, whether it's much or we consider it a little, let us be found faithful now. Because when that happens, the reality of heaven is truly living in us now. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways in which it challenges us. And Lord, all of us, we, we've been given so much. Um, there's, you've just blessed us in so many different ways. I pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in our stewardship of all those things that you have brought into our life. Because, Lord, it's not just about the work of being faithful. It's about revealing something greater than ourselves. When we are faithful stewards, Lord, it reveals the work of heaven in us. So, Lord, thank you for that. May we strive for that above all else. May we have no other gods beside you or besides you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.